Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Mark, good to see you. Uh, great to be here. We sh- probably should have had this conversation years ago, but I'm glad we're finally doing it. And there's there's sort of a newsy way to begin this conversation because you were one of the primary plaintiffs in, in our friend uh, Jenna Eunice's, uh, I guess she was co-counsel to, to a challenge, a, f- a First Amendment challenge um, of re- regarding yours and others' censorship on Twitter. Um, where is that at right now? Yeah, so the, in March of or February of 2022, we uh, Chang Easy and Daniel Kotzen and Michael Sanger, uh, we on with uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance with Janine Yunus, uh, sued the federal government, Department of Health and Human Services for uh, uh, you know arm twisting slash coordinating and collaborating with social with Twitter in particular uh, to censor their opponents. Uh, we were a couple months before the Missouri case, but by the time the Missouri case got up and rolling, a lot more uh, uh, FOIA requests, a lot more documents had been released. And so they now look like they're uh, hopefully on the cusp of the Supreme Court. And so they got discovery, initial discovery. Um, ours didn't have the benefit of, of that many materials. So they had, uh, the Fifth Circuit had rejected us. We appealed. They just rejected us last week. They We think that their decision is... Uh, they rejected us on standing, not on any substantive issue. Uh, we think that they're wrong uh, because that would apply to the Missouri case as well. So there's still more to the story. Uh, and when I know it, I'll, I'll talk about it later. So when you were um, when you were outspoken critic of lockdowns, and we'll get into that a lot more, but uh, when did you first notice um, the suppression of your voice? And I think it was on Twitter, right? Yeah, I mean, we certainly there was plenty of people being groups on Facebook being, you know, banned and, you know, kicked off and so forth. Uh, a lot of us felt it most on Twitter just because Twitter's really where we wanted to be. It's where we had reach. It, it, it's really a public square-like place. The other just don't really feel that way. Uh, we guess to be something was wrong a little bit even in 2020, uh, but I, it, it, and a lot of what was wrong was just the, just the populace itself was agitating for censorship. Every time I would turn on NPR, it was they're not doing enough uh, to stop misinformation on YouTube and Twitter and, and and Facebook and so forth. You couldn't have a stronger bottom-up push for censorship um, than what we were experiencing. So there was censorship from your you know just totalitarian level censorship, man on the street, uh, calling you a denier and the standard kinds of unclean uh, words for someone who wasn't part of the COVID cult. Those are actually the worst kinds of of censorship. Um, because uh, they have the ability to really snuff out uh, uh, people's voices across the world, which is why uh, whatever few academics were really opposed to it, whether it was 50% or 10%, I don't know, almost none uh, spoke up because they know that the social forces uh, across would have ruined them, their ability to get uh, promotion, tenure, and grants. Um, But I hadn't really felt strong evidence that the government itself was violating the First Amendment really until March of 2021, when Jen Psaki told us <laughs> that they were uh, censoring, uh, they're working with social media to censor uh, uh, misinformation, disinformation, that it would be a shame if something were to happen to your, you know, uh, 
your 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 status, or, or it'd be a shame if there was uh, antitrust uh, suits brought brought up against you. These were uh, now with the populace behind the notion of censorship, uh, that same kind of uh, a desire and righteous uh, belief that it's okay to do that and justified, morally justified to do it, spread through the government as well. And so they started uh, censoring and just unabashedly telling us so um, in early 2021. 20, uh, so the um, uh, pre-March of 2020, you were just a guy living your life, doing your work. Give us give us a sense for who that Mark was. Yeah, so I'm a, I had a small, you know, I, I had it. I've been on I three or three TED Talks and I was had a TV show. I was sort of the regular science guy on 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 head games on discovery channel and i've been on brain games and vsauce and i had a i've written for all the science magazines and I've, I've had a lot of discoveries and now i've got six books at the time i had i guess five books so i was well known out, uh, communications outreach for a lot of my discoveries in the sciences and to the extent that i ever got political it was just concerning free expression somewhere around 2015 i noticed when i look back at just trying you know i didn't really want to be left or right. i'm not left or right i don't consider myself left or right now but on free expression, I had a lot to say, and otherwise, I tried to stay out of it. But when uh, when March hit, it was so dystopian and uh, crazy, and it wasn't just left uh, left side doing this. Oh, it was the right. It was the libertarians, little L libertarians, capital L libertarians, everybody, uniformly across all of the supposed, you know, public intellectuals that I had potentially admired. All were beating as one that we had to violate civil liberties in mass, and anything else was uh, completely reckless, completely irresponsible, and completely unethical. Right? In fact, some of the first people that I noticed arguing against us were capital C communists. I, you know, I didn't. Eventually, team reality, so to speak, we found each other by you know April, May, June, whatever. It sort of more and more coalescing over time. But in the beginning, nope, none of us knew anybody else. We thought we were alone. We felt a little crazy. Uh, and so some of my first comrades in this were actual capital C communists who have a big paper on their shoulder about running economies, right? As they should, because this is constantly a wage of them. So they know, or at least these knew, that you can't freeze an economy. They can barely keep it running, you know, in the first place. You know, so they knew you can't freeze an economy. So I had found some strange comrades in, in the, those cases who were uh, against it for strong utilitarian reasons, I suppose, really not, not, not for sort of the libertarian reasons. But uh, so I just started spending, well, actually, in some ways I stopped my community. I was, you know, I had my YouTube series, uh, it's on Rumble as well, the Science Moment series, and I had done maybe 51 of them, very short, four minutes to eight minutes, uh, 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 little, little things on science. And I stopped once COVID hit. I felt like if I'm just, I can't just continue to talk about interesting, cool science stuff that I'm, you know, that I'm talking about my discoveries, because it would be like the, the artist that the Third Reich comes up and they're still doing whatever paintings they were doing before that, you know, no, it's like, you just can't do that anymore. So it took some months and then I it slowly convinced myself that it was sort of obvious. I said, well, there is no more interesting scientific event that has in some sense occurred in our lifetimes than what we were witnessing, right? Not to mention the ethical sides, but just the, the collective hysteria watching, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm not the kind of scientist that studies sort of complex evolutionary biology, cognitive science, brains, design and why we get designed the way we are how we came to have language so these are all cultural evolution natural selection trying to understand the, the design and function of animals but you understand these things 
uh, in very evolutionary kinds of complex emergent ways. So this is deeply interesting stuff. If you want to understand these kinds of complex dynamics, you have to think in those sorts of terms. And so there, you know, there was I started free the Free Expression Institute, which was really FreeX. FreeX.group is the website, but it's really devoted to understanding collective hysteria, these the kinds of mathematics and sort of societal level physics that occur in these circumstances. So we can try to understand both the importance of free expression as well as what goes wrong when these kinds of events occur. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24-7, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today, just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. It's kind of it's kind of interesting. You 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 approached it as a cognitive scientist, and it, I got to say, it's it's wildly disheartening to discover that your your newfound communist friends were some of the few that understood that there wasn't just a switch where you could turn off the economy and turn it back on again. Because I I approached it as an economist. I didn't know anything about epidemiology. I I really hadn't spent any time thinking about public health, except to the extent that there's a link between between economic prosperity and 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 human health but when those hashtags first started in in early march um, you may remember this stay the fuck home and and i took it quite literally when when i saw that on twitter as an economist what would actually happen if everybody stayed home we would in short order collapse and die um, because we're we're all dependent on this this distributed um, ecosystem that we call an economy so that that all of the the steps the infinite steps in the process that make sure that that you and your family are fed every day would, would immediately halt and stop now it turns out they didn't mean that everyone had to stay stay home but some people were essential and some people weren't and government bureaucrats were deciding that stuff but I but I approached it, um, not as a civil libertarian, not as a, a libertarian, but as an economist that said to myself, literally, um, this will be a humanitarian disaster if you stop the engine that, that feeds people. Um, and, and I quickly discovered that there were very few people that, that had that position in mid-March of 2020. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it really revealed an incredible naive, naivete about how the world works and what life is really all about. And this is not just on the free market side, it's also on the free expression side. Both of these are very similar intuitions. Um, their intuition is that, uh, and it's actually a very natural intuition, right? I mean, it's, it's very hard to understand how free markets, how is it possible that a bunch of distributed, decentralized people with prices being determined by no central you know, organizer can make all this brilliant design that is all these brilliant goods that you can buy. How can that happen? Same thing for the for free, for free expression. You've got all this just chaos and arguing and stuff like this and there's nobody deciding what's true and not yet the truth slowly bu bubbles up over time people want there to be a designer uh, um because that's the simplest way to understand the, the, the mountains of design and it's also why natural selection is so hard for people to grasp it is hard for people to grasp. and a lot of people like me and my you know in, in the academic world forget that because you get so steeped in it for years you forget that no natural selection is mind-blowingly amazing right yeah the fact that you can have our eyes and our bodies and all these brilliant design of all these different kinds of animals happen without a designer, right? 
Um, so we take it for granted. But most of the world is walking around without um, without these um, intuitions. Yeah. And uh, by the way, uh, fans of this show know that we, we talk a lot about Hayek and and that that phenomenon of uh, of these amazing things that happen when when people are free to just sort of work things out and it's not it's never of a conscious mind that these things happen they just they just happen and and we all sort of take it for granted which is why i thought the naive notion that you could shut off the economy and turn it back on i think trump was the one that said yeah i could turn it back on whenever i wanted um but it gets so so like i am a big believer in as Adam Ferguson, the Scottish Enlightenment philosopher, said, the wisdom of crowds. And and you have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what happened in this case, this mass psychosis, which is the the opposite of the wisdom of crowds. It was the the mass ignorance of crowds. I think you said it some other way. And I wanna I wanna read something that you posted on Twitter. If if your friends told you to jump off a cliff, would you? How about if your friends told you to panic over a virus with a broadly flu-like IFR, lock down the economy, shut down a million businesses, divide people into essential and non-essential, close schools, mask up all day, deny that natural immunity exists, treat every asymptomatic human as dangerous, and banish the unvaccinated, would you? Collective hysteria is no excuse. That's your, what you've been trying to figure out, and I know you have some, some strong thoughts on this, is collective hysteria and the moral implications if you got caught up into it. But could you have imagined before March of 2020 that to see something like that in America? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I guess my, my bones really didn't really expect it, but I was, you know, my, I'm, I'm from Iran. My father's from Iran. My wife is from Iran. I was born in the United States. But my father, coming from Iran, and he was not even there, you know, he, he left before the revolution. But even even before the revolution happened, he didn't want to go back. He always felt that things were deeply unstable. There was just this, it's always this feeling like there's um, moral panic ready to erupt and just, just you can't predict what's going. So, and he said, and it, it could happen here. Um, you should always, he always told me, don't get political, you know, because suddenly the mobs can, you know, just start to cancel. You didn't use those words back when, when we were discussing with them. So, uh, and so I used to always argue when I was being very consciously, you know, philosophical that of course these things could happen here. They can happen anywhere. They happen in Germany, which are, you know, Westerners. They're not some faraway people that we don't get. No, they're, they're, I mean, we make jokes that Germans are different or something because we just make poke fun at them, but they're not. They're just Westerners, right? And it, and, so a lot of us really felt like these sorts of things couldn't happen here. And as much as I consciously sort of talked about that they could, I really didn't believe I'd ever see see it in you know, firsthand in my lifetime. But and I, I I think that I would like to think that at least half the population now has an appreciation for the fragility of uh, small d democracy, the fragility of of tolerance, and and how quickly totalitarianism, not just authoritarianism. What we witnessed was was totalitarianism. Which is decentralized, um, distributed authoritarianism. It's the man on the street. It's your mother. It's your, you know, your your niece. These people will snitch on you just like they do in some of these countries and enforce the new authoritarian righteous rules on the street. Uh, so it's not when it's just authoritarianism, just 
the dictators that are far away and everybody's thumbing their nose at them, they don't really have much power. It's just like the DMV trying their best to make everybody do stuff. It, it doesn't typically, it's not nightmarish. It's nightmarish only when it becomes a righteous um, new religion of sorts that's spread across the communities. And then people are willing to uh, to pretty, pretty much do anything to you uh, and they feel completely justified to do so. Yes, and that, and uh, I, I was perhaps more naive about it. I, I think of the wisdom of crowds and I think of the ability of, of people, not everybody, but there's always, um, there's always people that, that have enough understanding of what's happening that they, you sort of sort your way through um, whatever the, the, the problem or the crisis at hand is. And, and Americans proved to me, as they proved to you, that we're, we're no better, we're no less susceptible to mass hysteria than all of these, these totalitarian countries that we've studied. Um, you mentioned Iran. Um, one, of the, one of my friends and guests on the show uh, grew up during Mao's Cultural Revolution, and she tells shocking stories about what her neighbors would do to her father and her mother um, because they decided Maybe they were told, but maybe they decided for themselves that, that her family was the enemy. And it is unspeakably unhuman. And, and we sort of have this naive notion um, in modern society that we're sort of past that. But what I saw in COVID was we're not past that at all. Yeah, and, and, and I'd say it's worse than that in terms of what the average person understands. The average person uh, would, if you ask them, they would say the reason the Cultural Revolution in China or, you know, the Nazi, the Third Reich and so forth. The reason it was so dangerous is because you had uh, a strong top-down uh, force with, that was ruthless sorts of people, and they were trying to do e evil, and their mustache twiddling, knowing, knowing that they were doing evil. It's not like that at all, right? Um, there, there's a it very rarely societal-level evil is done by sort of mustache twiddling criminals in the everyday sense. Usually these people have completely drank the Kool-Aid. They believe more than anybody else in the righteousness of their actions. Um, cer certainly they're doing white lies all over the place, but they're doing it for the good, right? And of course they're doing, uh, you know, evil things, but not to them. They're doing evil things to the unclean out group, but that's totally justified because they are, those are unclean enemies. Uh, so most people don't understand that it was done by the man and the woman on the street, that they were on the backs of the man and the woman on the street, that's the power came in. And it wasn't just that the power came in and made them all, you know, zombies. No, it's, it's much more complicated than that. The reason that the person could come in was because there was mass support for it. And that's sort of the back and forth. And uh, uh, those are the, those pieces of wisdom, the banality of evil, you know, there's, there's certainly, all of this stuff is known, but the average person still doesn't know it. And still, I don't think the average person after, in fact, watching it themselves, so, so, still hasn't uh, uh, internalized this generalization that they should. This is why, you know, I put together, you know, I was talking about the science moment series that I switched over to being more about COVID and the interesting scientific slash ethical and logical things that are going on with COVID. I went from, you know, 52 was my, the first episode in the endless COVID season. Now I'm on 422, right? So just sort of endless interesting uh, stuff in this realm. And I have about 30 of them that were concerning what evil is at the societal level. And I put them together and sort of a curated into a movie called Societal Level Evil, which you could find in, in Rumble or YouTube. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. 
Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Yeah, I, I, I just finished watching it, which is sort of what inspired me on this, on this course of questioning. And I, I think about this all the time because I think, I think if we don't understand what happened, we're not going to be particularly well equipped to ensure that it never happens again in this country. And I've, um, you, you are, sometimes you get in trouble with um, some, some critics of lockdowns who, who believe that this was some sort of centrally planned evil genius, uh, they call it a pandemic, um, that this was all designed to extract our, our freedoms and our wealth and, and to um, subjugate people. And, and you, re- you reject that out of hand. Well, I don't know about out of hand, but it, 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 it again, it stems from the same, the same human bias to want to explain seeming coordination uh, on the basis of central designer. Uh, and, and because that is the most obvious layman's explanation for these sorts of things. Uh, but you don't need anything like that. All that you needed, um, I mean, it didn't, I mean, a lot of the, the figures that they point to, for example, Event 201, Event 201 wasn't evidence of a pre-planned, uh, you know, release of a virus or a pre-planned sort of a, yeah. but there was a lot of pre-planning in the other sense of springs that were set to activate were there a pandemic. The military is constantly doing this bullshit, right? They're just filled with like any possible crazy thing you can imagine. They've got money and a bunch of uh, academics. I've been invited to get things. You sit down, you come up with some bullcrap stuff of what, what do you do? And, and invariably, these people are all authoritarian minded and they think that they're they truly believe they're trying to help, right? But they're all authoritarian. All if you watch, sit down and watch Event 201, it's a just a big piles of authoritarian things to do. One of them, not that they didn't recommend doing, they explicitly said don't do. By the way, was lockdowns. <laughs> Bullet number three, even they said don't do lockdowns. But nevertheless, there's lots and lots of things that they said to do, all of which were authoritarian. Those are like springs ready to activate, and there's lots and lots of other so many springs ready to activate and ask for authoritarianism when these things happen and that is those were certainly contributing and makes them culpable um but the number of culpable you know the organizations is just you know mind-bogglingly large yeah go, going back to uh, sort of distributed knowledge and and emergent orders um the the thing and i would say it differently as an economist but i would say exactly what you said was the idea that this was some sort of genius central plan flies in the face of everything we know about central plans, they're 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 dumb, and they're dumb because it's it's centralized, and and a, but a, but a different like there's a there's a middle ground maybe it's a middle ground but there's a different critique that sort of looks at the perverse incentives that that surely all of those participants in two hundred one had but 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 Fauci and and health and and the, the defense industrial complex, all of these folks had perverse financial incentives to want a crisis so that they could act. And I think, I think that's, to me, a better um, explanation for what happened was, you know, they finally got the crisis that they'd been planning for for a long time, and they just piled on and said, okay, now's our chance to test all these, 
all these theoretical models we have for, for reorganizing society in the midst of, of, a, of a pandemic. And they're like, okay, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think there's tilted playing fields by virtue of incentives that have been set up wrongly. There's lots of springs ready to activate, which are all going to be harmful despite them be, uh, believing that they're helping. And uh, there was a lot of uh, uh, folks that once you built a, a, a massive monstrous machine that's kind of cool to you because you spend a lot of time on it, you're kind of excited internally to see it work. You, you really want to show it. And again, they they aren't conscious of saying, now's my chance to show my machine because once I show that it works, they're going to get a big raise. No, they really think, here's the time to show oh, that I was such a cool person in life that I actually helped save people during this, this pandemic. I'm going to be the most righteous of the righteous because of that, you know, that's where they're thinking. And that makes them worse, right? That yeah. makes them more dangerous than any criminal in the normal everyday sense. So if if they were just maximizing revenue, they would have been less dangerous, but they, they believed in the cause. Yeah, invariably that's the case. And, and, uh, and, and often in these sorts of situations, um, they may have some local advantage, but often the whole system is just spiraling down, you know, and they're happy to, to use the fact that they're spiraling once if they sometimes notice it, sometimes they don't notice it. But they'll notice, they'll point out, look, the fact that I'm spiraling down is evidence that kind of sacrifice shows how righteous I am. I've been willing to lose, right? And that this is what criminals um, aren't willing to do in the in everyday sense criminals. I wonder what you think about this. I'm, so I'm, I'm working on a project right now with Senator Rand Paul that that is trying to get at the root um, incentives behind the cover-up itself. Because I think, I think it's safe to say that, that so much of the censorship and so much of the the diverted and destructive public health response was aided and abetted by by bureaucrats trying to cover their ass for what they had done on on gain of function research and yeah, yeah. and I would say that that's certainly like, although I don't believe societal level evil is driven by regular old kind of criminality level evil that is a great example I mean, there's certainly always going to be smatterings of criminal regular criminal level behavior everywhere and that is one big big case the Fauci was. I think cognizant and aware that in addition to realizing he messed up and wanting to like cover it up, up to cover it, he also was, you know, he wanted to make sure that fewer people died because of what he did. And he's trying to cover it up. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's internally justified some of these things too, but I think that is a regular criminal level kind of evil that he was involved in with CYA yeah. covering it up. Yeah. But it, um, as a scientist, I, I want to, this is, half theory and i think there's there's significant evidence for this but this is what we're trying to get at this mad science experiment that that eventually ended up in wuhan but it didn't certainly didn't start there um, it gets to a sort of arrogance and scientism that doesn't appreciate unintended consequences it, do, it doesn't understand the the, the distributed um, genius of decentralized systems they thought that they could redesign the world and and do all of these experiments and come up with vaccines that would solve all these um, potential biosecurity threats. And they, they focused on their, their central plan and didn't spend much time. I mean, you can go back and read Fauci um, uh, boisterously defending gain-of-function research, um, but there was, there was very little reflection on the downside risks of what they didn't know. Well, I... I, I should back up. I 
I'm still not convinced that although I'm I'm not one of these no that there's no such thing as a virus. There's you know there's one of these uh, sort of pandemic type kind of uh, list. But I'm I'm not I I don't believe flu disappeared suddenly. I think this is a systematic artifact of the the manner in which uh, these things are measured. The, the very way that that doctors determine whether their patient has flu is by um, sticking their thumb in there and and checking to what other doctors are saying in the community. There's a, it's a it's an inherently a consensus like check. It's not entirely by test. They uh, whether it's a positive or negative test, they still basically bias themselves towards what the consensus is. So uh, and that's just one of multiple ways that it gets biased. So I don't think flu disappeared. I don't think that COVID, even if there was a leak, and of course leaks happen at these virus labs all. It happens quite commonly because it's a respiratory virus. It's like an aerosol. It's like smoke. It's practically impossible to contain. But I'm not convinced that this is what was causing, uh, that was the spreading all over the world and suddenly in all of these cities within one month causing these gigantic massive spikes in excess death. It seems to be uh, mostly or entirely uh, iatrogenic. Iatrogenic. And I can't say not. Uh, so these are human-induced deaths by virtue of sudden changes to style and medical practice and these things happened in all these it, when they suddenly panicked and i say that in a very they don't believe that they panicked they think that they sat down and let's do this because it's so dangerous and they had a tenfold fold exaggerated notion of how dangerous it was partly because they were conflating cs cfr and ifr and these are the reasons these these spikes and deaths occurred not because of flu or coronavirus they may well have had one or the other just because, you know, there may have, they had hypersensitive tests and so maybe they were coming up positive. I don't, I'm not even sure. I, I don't, I'm not one to believe that this is like some head fake that they're trying to get us to believe that there was a Wuhan leak because this covers up some other thing. There may have been a leak, but I'm not convinced that this is uh, really uh, explains the lion's share of the uh, excess deaths. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibi on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So the, and the, the the basis of your of your criticism of of those who went along with it or actively participated in this is that um, authoritarianism is not something that comes from the top down. It comes from the bottom up. Explain explain that a little bit more. I mean, authoritarianism can certainly, and I you know, authoritarianism is is typically thought of entirely as top-down, almost by definition. Um, that is uh, certainly there in totalitarianism, but totalitarianism is different because you end up with those kinds of forces being social forces everywhere from society all, at, all, and all, at all levels. It's not just coming from top-down. And so that's uh, what we were dealing with, and that's why it felt so scary if you understood what was going on uh, that most of the time it wasn't the states telling you what to do. It was friends and work co-workers and your restaurant, which wouldn't let you in anymore. And, you know, it was, it was the man and the woman on the street that had become your enemy. Right? That feels completely different than uh, pure authoritarianism, which is just uh, 
you know, the new coup that happens in some third world uh, banana republic, everybody just sort of snaps it off and continues their life because they don't really have much power to to wield over the population. It's kind of a it's a it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing where um, there were certainly um, uh, cheerleaders. Um, and Fauci would certainly be one of them, but but in the media, and and governors and that in that entire echo chamber that were telling us, and of course the Imperial College model, and these these catastrophically large uh, death estimates that were coming out of of all of this this machine, like I, I call it the pandemic industrial complex, because they their job was to. Um, stop these things but in the process of, of doing that they they came up with these hysterical predictions um did that come first or did did people's fear because I, how would we have known what to be have been afraid of if we hadn't have heard about the millions and millions of people that were going to die according to this this uh storied academic coming from from the uk but what uh, one answer to this kind of thing is that it's it's each, each of those folks that contributed to further fear and and worry about this shares culpability. And they share, they have culpability to the extent that they had a loud voice, to the extent that they, you know, made uh, exaggerated arguments. It doesn't have to be that they purposely did it. And to the extent that they were given a, you know, they had a role, a kind of public uh, leadership role. Um, but in terms of looking for a first cause, that's a, an emergent complex phenomenon. That's not really a sensible thing to say. If you just imagine an avalanche, uh, you can, if it's red avalanche, that you can just throw one marshmallow on the hillside and the whole thing's going to slide. Now you can say, what caused it to slide? Well, someone threw, you know, a marshmallow. But the next, you know, bird that would have pooped on it, it was going to go, it was going to slide anyway. Almost anything is going to trigger a landslide in that case. And it's not really helpful or explanatory to go point at that. Right? And you could go point to that. The second rock that hit, then two rocks, which hits one big boulder, which hit a whole bunch of rocks. And these are like big ones, more top down, like big, big, powerful things, which are hitting a lot of small things. But then there's a lot of whole small things that then manage to bump this really big boulder, which, so you end up with all of these, just these symbols that it's even worse because it's not just all downhill, where, where it tends to be fairly, once you hit something, it doesn't hit the same thing again. I mean, it can't happen to this, but it can happen in swirls. And so it starts to swirl around and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, Asking about the first cause is a kind of way to get, to get the wrong kind of, of hypothesis. Given all that, and and given that this is um, you're you're arguing that this is a bottom up mass hysteria, um, what? Well, what, let me just stop you. Just, sure. sure. The way that we use bottom up now in this analogy of the avalanche, uh, top down would be we use that in normal life as big powerful some kind of bigger, powerful thing is affecting a lot of small people, yeah. individuals. That's just a big boulder that slides a little bit and bumps into a lot, you know, gravelly, small rocks. And then top down, I mean, bottom up would be a bunch of small things that can then trigger some bigger thing to move. Um, both of those things are happening in a landslide. Um, it, and so it's not to say that it's just bottom up because bottom up and top down things and medium, medium things are rare. It's, it's happening in all of the different kinds of levels. It's all happening at once. Um, but, the, but the question is, for those of us that, that care about civil liberties and, and a lot of the, the human collateral damage caused by this mass hysteria, the question is, what do we do to make sure that it never happens again? 
I mean, th th those are the kinds of things that I'm, there's, there's various levels of, of how to, to do that. I mean, some of the more difficult things that I've been trying to work on is thinking about how can you build social networks? Um, how can you set up mechanisms within social networks to help uh, reduce the chances of memes going viral and su suddenly piling through? Um, and I, you know, uh, I think that one thing you could do is have a lot more of this normal socio-emotional things that happen in real life. Uh, the, when when humans are interacting one-on-one, -on -one, it's a very different kind of, of, of social network than that happens online right now. And I think that's making things worse. It's not merely that the world is connected, but we're, we're connected by uh, 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 pairwise connections that aren't, aren't done by our no normal socio-emotional channels. So my last book is most recent book is, is expressly human, which is answering the question about why it is that we social animals evolved to have emotional expressions. So it's really a full mathematical first principles understanding of what emotional expressions really are and what they're for. They're the true language that we truly are, are designed to speak before we properly had it in any way, before we have ever had a lot spoken on, which is not something we evolved to have at all. And so the, I think that there's certain reasons that I think that if, if we had a better ability to do this, these systems would work better, move towards the truth better, be less troll-like, you know, and lots of lots of problems that they have. So that's one kind of thing. Another other thing I commonly talk about is just being aloof. Uh, and uh, I've always in my career, I'm a theorist that moves from field to field. I've worked in brain, you know, brain evolution and how we how we came to have music and why your fingers get pruny, you know, wet and what wrinkly when they're wet. These are all assigned. They're, completely different kinds of areas that I've worked on. In order to do that, I've had to make sure I don't become wedded to a particular conference community where I get to know everybody and I want to make, you know, I want to convince them that I'm, you know, the big cheese and all the young people, as I get a little bit older, treat me like a big cheese. And now I want to stay there because they're treating me like whatever. You get sucked in and then you become like those maps of new the earth where New York City fills up the almost the entire earth. You're the problems that of that field suddenly be. So I've always said, you know, to be a good theorist of the kind of scientist that I'm good at, I had to just remain aloof. And I think there's a kind of political, sociopolitical aloofness where if you can keep it that way, you're much less likely to fall into these righteous beliefs that my team, you know, is good. And no matter what, and a lot of what goes on is is, is failing to, to, to keep yourself aloof. And the third is really uh, is teaching something that we have to do every generation. Is just teaching the importance of civil liberties, uh, and and it civil liberties are not something that we balance with welfare and um, and all of the other kinds of things. Those are utilitarian calculus, which have to, to you know just figure out how we balance all the different kinds of, of utilities. Um, a lot of people say, well, civil liberties is just one of those things. We've got to balance it. No, it's not. Civil liberties is the fence in your backyard that determines the boundary line. And within your fence, you can balance how big your pole is, how big your deck is, how much green space that you're going to have. You can do all those kinds of utilitarian calculus that you want, but what you're not allowed to do is say, I'm going to expand the line into my neighbor's yard, right? That's not, you're making a kind of category mistake when you play those games. So there's a lot, you know, so there's, there's a multi-tab, like a dozen kind of spearheaded things that I'm trying to point out to people that civil liberties um, are not, you can't justify violating civil liberties in an emergency um, when civil liberties are violated, that is our greatest emergency. Uh, they are designed for emergencies. Right? So that's, why, that's why we have civil liberties. You don't have, need civil liberties when everybody's honky-dory and no one's demanding 
take your stuff and violate your rights. The whole point of having civil liberties is when there's uh, people afraid or people worried about something and people believing that to keep us all safe, we have to do this to Doug, right? And, and, and Doug, you know, millions of dollars. So there's, there's making these kinds of arguments for the, the, why civil liberties is a different kind of animal, uh, I think really needs to be done and isn't, in my opinion, even really absorbed by most libertarians. I'd say half the libertarians, half plus or minus 30% are ultimately, you know, defended with utilitarianism. And I think it's, it's, uh, I think it really needs a deontological defense. Um, the civil liberties are just uh, inviolable, and you have to come up with uh, philosophical defenses that lead to that. If it's if it's through utilitarianism, you're always open up to the next uh, ingenious scheme. So I'm thinking of there's this famous picture that that I hope is real, um, since I'm about to quote it. But there's this famous picture that that is a standard meme on social media. Of, of an entire crowd saluting Hitler and one guy sitting on his hands or, or just holding his hands to the side. Um, I want to understand the people like that guy during, during the early moments of this. And I'll, I'll name a name, um, someone that you know, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, um, a celebrated public health, health uh, epidemiologist and economist at Stanford University. How do you explain the few people that refuse to fall in line? And I choose him because he had um, probably more to lose than you or I did by speaking up, because he he was he was part of that ecosystem. Yeah, he was. I had I had already left. You know, I've I've been a professor in many places, but I had already left in 2010 in academia to start my own research institute, and because I wanted to buy my intellectual freedom, because of, you know it's really. You have to get grants. I'm not. I'm a theorist, not experiment. So I'd, I'd already kind of wanted to be aloof, and I got wanted to maintain my aloofness to keep my intellect free. Uh, Jay didn't. Jay was really in the heart of it, and um, that made it even harder. I'm hoping that I would have done, you know, stood up as I did, were I in it. But I'll never know. Sure, I think it, if I had been sitting in the wrong social network, connected to all of the high reputation people around me, uh, were telling me that it was. Definitely an altogether novel and disproportionately dangerous virus, and we have to do all of these things. I don't know. I think I, I may have then just, you know, most of what I believe is the stuff that the high reputation people around me tell me is true. I haven't gone and checked it. Same for all of us. I happen to be a scientist, so there's maybe two dozen things that I've actually, I know because I know it, you know, like, but the rest of the 999, you know, thousand things is because I believe other people. So I think I would have been a, a pretty good and strong Karen had I sitting in the wrong networks, right? Why not? I don't, I'm not one of these people now. I'm totally impervious. No, I, I, I know that I'm, it's a danger, which is why I've always kept aloof for scientific reasons, right? So how he did it, I don't know his background in the sense uh, of whether he was always, maybe, you know, you can match certain kinds of people who are really deeply religious that it kept them out of those, you know, they have something else that was deep in, into their heart that may have kept them aloof from the social networks that were around them. That's a good question. That I, so I don't know his personal uh, story as to how he managed to do it, but it, it was imagine it was very hard because uh, just there's just four of them, you know, that, that really stood up. That this may this may be part of your your second rule on on aloofness, but um, when people ask me, so if I'm if I'm giving a talk or even in comments on something like this, people are asking us, what do we do? What do I, you know, Bob from Iowa do next time 
And, and my advice is somebody has to go first. And, and civil disobedience always starts with that one guy that refuses to salute. And, yeah. and if, if we maybe do a better job next time, because I think a lot of people appreciate that, that even people that were in on this um, in the early weeks of the lockdowns, they now realize that they were, they were sold a bill of goods, they were uh, betrayed and, and whatever, um, whatever you want to describe that, and they won't do it next time. But, but somebody needs to go first. So when they reinstate masks on planes, somebody needs to go first. And that makes it safer for other people to, to follow their lead and say, okay, I'm not alone. There's safety in numbers. Yeah. I mean, this is a you know standard problem uh, that this is why regular old top-down tyrannies can occur and do occur. Just a, you have a whole population that disagrees, but the consequences of the first person are sufficiently severe. Just no one's willing to do anything. Uh, I certainly, in the beginning, once the mask mandates came out, I didn't want to get into a fight at every darn store. And I kind of didn't blame the storekeepers either because they were getting screwed over for three or four months or whatever. And now I'm going to come in and cause the problem. So, you know, for a while I was just putting it on and kind of just taking it off. But I think that was wrong. I think on retrospect, um, and by, you know, four months later, by the time it was November of 2020, I started to make a fuss everywhere that I went. I got kicked out a lot of places. And I think it's much better to, you can't sometimes completely buck the trend. You just can't get your goods. You can't survive. But you can make it so that, they have to be an authoritarian every time you walk in. They have to uh, raise their voice. They have to, to show. If, if you just walk in, then they, uh, then they think you agree because you just did what they asked. Every time they should feel a little frustrated that they had to uh, be an authoritarian. Now, maybe they don't even realize they're being an authoritarian because you're doing something taboo. And from their point of view, it's like asking you to put on underwear, you know, like you walked in naked. But other people on the fence are watching them behave as an authoritarian and we'll see it as an ugly, hopefully an ugly thing. And that couldn't hopefully motivate that. So it's, but these are, there's, there's no easy answer to how to, because you know, the number of people you're affecting when you do act, act like that might be nobody. It might be there was no one really around even noticing. So the other thing is, you know, get online, get on social. Some people say that you're just on social media, you're not changing anybody. No, social media today is the public square. It is how you can potentially reach huge audiences and if, if you have a small account obviously everything is scaled down but um you the small accounts are like the public square the literal version of it of the soapbox and you know the soapbox they'd argue and then maybe they'd send a representative off to some bigger city where all of the little soapbox with winners or whatever rep, these are like the analogy of elected representatives they'll argue there these things these sort of hierarchies are happening in a much more continuous fashion continuous fashion across social media and uh, everybody at all of these scales, in some sense, needs to play their part for it to work. So uh, being uh, not keeping your head down, at least on social media, and loudly claiming about how wrong it is to do what they're doing uh, would have been helpful. But I think in the beginning, I was alone on social media doing that. And uh, it even took me too long. It took me almost a year before I started to go to Facebook. And I was like, do I really want to go to Facebook? I'm just going to piss off friends and family. And I thought, well, why should I just, you know, they're not hearing it from anybody else. And I'm a scientist who, you know, in principle, they go, yeah, Mark is well known for these discoveries that should mean something. And that it never in fact does mean, and once they're, you know, as soon as, as soon as they're already in the cult, it, you know, the fact that I am a better scientist or a scientist and they're not, it doesn't actually mean anything, but for those on the fence, it, it matters. And so I, I always deem my arguments, my videos, 
Uh, everything that I do on Twitter is for those people that sit on the fence. And then for those people that are on my side, but they were, they were meek, but it gives them confidence. And then it gives them the arguments and the data to uh, make their case stronger around uh, other people that are potentially on the fence. Which, which gets us back where we started, um, the fundamental importance of free speech as, as one of the, the most foundational civil liberties, because everything you just said depends on a government that didn't um, actively try to, to stifle your voice. Right. Well, and I, I, and I think you'd agree with me, it's, it's, it's much more than First Amendment free speech. If, you, if it hadn't been the case that the feds, that Biden administration hadn't gone and started their you know, disinformation bureau, which is effectively what they did. Well, Facebook uh, wanted to censor us. Twitter wanted to censor us, maybe not to the same level and not in coordination. Uh, YouTube wanted to censor. Google wanted to censor. Um, the populace wanted and was demanding censorship. Uh, if the populace doesn't believe in tolerance, doesn't believe in the, in the very notions of free expression, and that it's important, most of all, to defend the speech of those that you disagree with, uh, you're not going to have... Uh, 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 free expression, even if the government manages to keep their hands off. But yeah. it, once the populace is like that, it's 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 almost guaranteed because the you know the, pe the people that are representatives in government are also people. They're part of that population. The culture changes to say that misinformation censorship is okay. Well, they're now there. It affects them as well. So uh, it's su suddenly going to be violating the First Amendment when that happens. So originally, and I want to I want to wrap up with this because we're running out of time. But originally, I wanted to talk to you about another video, um, not the not the societal tyranny conversation that we've just had, but but you wrote a, a you you published a pretty compelling series of uh, uh, video essays about the dehumanizing nature of masks. And give us give us the short version of that argument because I just had John Tierney on, and he just wrote a great piece. Um, reviewing the science on masks and showing that, that not only don't they protect us, but they actually cause um, physical harms in terms of carbon dioxide and all sorts of other problems. But your argument is 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 fundamentally moral, not not like the the, the health science. Yeah, I I, I uh, purposely avoided talking about the standard. Uh, efficacy issues of masks and the, uh, you know, those acne and kind of skin tears and skin wounds that happen and the cardiovascular issues that happen, which those are well covered by other folks. Very few people were covering the psychosocial aspects of it. And I can't believe it's a two and a half hour long kind of curated movie, you know, compilation. Of this. So this, each of those is coming at a different kind of dimension, psychosocial dimension of, of the kinds of things that are being ruined by virtue of, of, of face masks from what it does to those who are deaf to what it does uh, to your perception of what a face is like underneath the mask to what it is to, to block your emotional expressions and the importance of these things. Uh, but it's really, I think there's almost a hundred different kinds of these dimensions that are all in the very first video that I did actually in the endless COVID season that, you know, once I restarted it was, uh, you know, masks block your lower visual field. People don't think of it as blocking your vision because it's not, sort of intuitive that it's blocking your vision, but it is blocking your vision. It's blocking your lower visual field. You're sort of, if you actually sort of attend to where you can see, it's you you can't see your feet, you can't see, actually usually you can see your cheeks, your far periphery, what ends your vision is actually where your cheeks are, which is why football players put black there. They put black 
because light is reflecting off of their cheeks into their eyes. And by putting black there, they're getting less glare off of their cheeks. So when you, those parts of your visual field, they're not, you're not consciously aware of them, but they have all of the optic flow that occurs. And optic flow is what allows you to determine your speed in the world. And the, the various different optic flow speeds below you tells you about the complex terrain and the three-dimensional parallax of that environment. You block that, you're going to increase your chances of, a, of having a fall. Falls are important. Falls, especially for older folks, are often the first of three, you know, three or four steps to death because you get a fall, you're in bed, you get a UTI, and then that suddenly causes you know immunosuppression, and then suddenly you've got some kind of bacterial infection. So falls are a big deal. Uh, but and I'm not saying that's enough. You know, if masks worked, which they don't work, but uh, then you know that may not be enough to counteract it. But that's just one. Of, of many, many dozens of, of psychosocial or psychoperceptual kinds of things that have to be calculated, and nobody was, was really considering any of this. Where can people find, I know you have a Substack, um, you have a, a, a think tank, I guess you, you would call it. Where can people find more of your work? Yeah, so there's LoofWire, and I talked about being aloof. So I started uh, kind of trying to, having a magazine, like L-O-O-F, LoofWire.com is where a lot of my stuff appears there. Of course, find me at Twitter. And uh, you can go to YouTube, but because of YouTube being so censorial, you can go over to you know, find Mark Changizi at Rumble. That'd be a lot better uh, so, to, to support Rumble. If you could. Okay, thank you so much, Mark. Great to be here. Thanks for watching. If you liked the conversation, make sure to like the video, subscribe, and also ring the bell for notifications. And if you want to know more about Free the People, Go to freethepeople.org.